Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Bakersfield 3 is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. A cop once told me, today's suspect can be tomorrow's victim. In the gang unit, it's not that uncommon for a detective to show up to a crime scene and recognize the murder victim as the prime suspect in one of their other murder cases. The cop said, it's just how it goes. I know a detective who was once investigating a man she thought might be a serial killer, potentially responsible for the murders of numerous women. At the same time, she was investigating the murder of that man's brother. When she talked to the family, she had to balance them as family of her suspect and of one of her victims. Cops will say, you've got to be mentally prepared to navigate these scenarios. Not every victim is going to be an angel. Not every suspect is going to be a straightforward bad guy. But that's the cops' mentality, not the general public's, especially in this case. For years, people in Bakersfield were captivated and devastated by a glossy photo of Bailey in a flowing white dress, leaning up against a tree, smiling big at the camera. That photo with the word missing was everywhere. When they saw her face and heard her name, they thought, this poor victim. When she was charged with murder, some people who'd been following the case from the start seemed to take it almost as a betrayal. It felt somewhat similar to when a public figure has a fall from grace and people have deep disappointment and anger, like they were let down by this person who they didn't actually know, but they felt like they did. People had become invested in Bailey and what had happened to her. And some of those people quickly had very strong feelings about the news. Here's Bailey's friend, Maddie. People immediately go in about how she's a murderer and she's this and that, and I'm over here like... This woman has not got to speak for herself in three years. Like, how dare you say these things about her? Bailey's sister, Caitlin. I mean, there's a lot, if not 90% of people who still stand by her being innocent. And then there's that 10% that switched from, oh, this is so sad. She's a missing person. She's a victim, too. Oh, she's this horrible person. She deserves to be missing because of what she did. And if she is dead, hopefully she went through the same type of torture and murder that she helped with. I'm Olivia LaVoice, and this is The Bakersfield Three.
after the announcement that Bailey was charged with Micah's murder, a lot of people were frankly confused. There were lots of comments like, I thought the girl in the Bakersfield 3 was murdered by her boyfriend. Now you're saying she and the boyfriend just killed another one of the Bakersfield 3? So did the boyfriend still kill her? Or did she run away? And then there were the comments about how strange and terrible it was that Bailey's sister, Caitlin, had given her baby girl the hyphened middle name, Micah Bailey. People speculated how much her sister likely regretted that decision now, how she should change the baby's name immediately. So much of the focus was on Bailey being charged, it seemed like some people forgot about Matthew Queen and that he was the one who would actually be standing trial and would have the chance to defend himself. Caitlin and Maddie say that was probably the most painful thing of all. They shouldn't be allowed to legally charge somebody with murder that has been missing for three and a half years. That's, it's ridiculous in my opinion. I would understand if there had been sightings, you know, that she was just a runaway, but no, she is legitimately missing, like gone off the face of this earth. I just don't understand how somebody who's been missing for going on four years can be charged with first degree murder when they're not here to defend themselves. Not only was this the first and only time I've had a story where I have a likely victim publicly accused of being a killer, it was also a first to have an accused murderer in my story that I couldn't at least try to speak with. Instead, I could only talk to people who knew Bailey and get their opinion. And I tried to get a variety. Here's the self-proclaimed drug dealer who said in his interactions with Bailey, I thought she was batshit crazy. Beautiful, but crazy. (laughs) What did you think when you heard that she was actually being charged for Micah's murder? I don't think she had it in her. Here's her friend Maddie again. I knew that girl through and through, head to toe. I could tell you the next sentence that would come out of her mouth before she could say it. And that is not in her to do something like that, especially with the amount of gruesomeness that they say took place there and the chopping up and all that. I never in a million years do I think she is capable of that. I also asked Jeremy Bell, who knew Bailey, Micah, and James, and knew them when they weren't exactly on the straight and narrow, himself included. We're not on the right side of the law by any means. Jeremy also admittedly wasn't a fan of Bailey's. Trouble. She had a loud mouth, very obnoxious. She was a wreck waiting to happen. When I asked if he thinks she's capable of murder? I do and I don't. It's kind of hard seeing her. I, now, her talk about it, her telling Matt McQueen, uh, oh, yeah, let's, yeah, you know, I'm down, I'm down, let's kill him. I could see her doing that because, like I said, she came off like she was some badass. But when it came down to it, I would guarantee that she would fold under pressure. She wouldn't. She's all talk. I also wanted to hear from Bailey's friend Jessica, who lived next door to her and Matthew Queen. I figured she'd have an important perspective, having spent a lot of time around the two of them. When we would hear about Michael on the news or anything, they would, you know, act just as like, I wonder where he is. Like, that's crazy. We just hung out with him. Like, to where I did not even think twice about them being involved. That was the last thought in my mind. Because they were just so good at, like, 
acting like they wanted to know what happened too. In terms of Bailey's actual involvement, Jessica saw firsthand how Bailey wanted to come off tough. She even supposedly liked that Queen had guns because Jessica says they made her feel safe, made her feel like people wouldn't try to hurt her. But she also saw a girl who nursed sickly animals back to health, kept baby ducks in her bathtub, who would refuse to kill a spider and insist on gently picking it up and putting it outside. The tough exterior, she felt, was a defense mechanism she'd developed as a response to trauma. I know in my heart that she she didn't have it in her. She was all bark and no bite when it came to that kind of stuff. She just really was a scared puppy in my eyes. Of everyone I spoke with about this, the person I thought would probably have the most accurate sense on the matter was her sister, Caitlin. Caitlin obviously knows Bailey extremely well, but just as importantly, Caitlin sugarcoats nothing. And of everyone I've spoken with, she's often the harshest when it comes to Bailey. I get it a lot that as her sister, that I shouldn't be so brutal with the decisions and the choices that she made, that I should be more sympathetic for it, but I'm not. And I get hell for it all the time. Well, that's your sister. You should you should have nicer things to say about her. Well, if I sit here and say, oh, she was an angel, she was a saint, she was a perfect girl, she was the nicest girl you'd ever meet, I'd be lying. Caitlin thinks her sister made a lot of bad decisions. But in terms of murdering Micah... I fully 100% believe that if she did play a part or she did have anything to do with it, it was by force. But I don't think mentally she would have it in her to murder somebody. No. You might remember in episode one, Cheryl said Micah's dad Lance had a theory when he realized Bailey went missing shortly after Micah. Lance knew immediately. I mean, he just cut straight through it. And he said, Mike is dead, and she knew too much. I said something similar when the moms and I appeared on Dr. Phil in 2018, about eight months after their disappearances. Something that uh, myself and the mothers we have strongly considered is the possibility that Bailey, Bailey knew what happened to Micah, and that made her a liability of sorts, that she had that information. But being a target because she knew too much and being a killer were two very different scenarios. The moms and I had even thought that maybe Bailey, unbeknownst to her, was used to lure Micah somewhere. You may recall Matt Vandecastiel and Matt Queen tried to attack a guy we're calling Sam. The two Matts got Sam's address after Sam sent it to Bailey. And Bailey Snapchatted me, uh, saying, let's meet up. And I was all sure, you know, uh, I'd love to meet up. When they finally showed, when she finally showed up, it wasn't her. Matt Vandecastiel later told Sergeant Garrett it wasn't actually Bailey who was messaging Sam that day. Well, no, Matt had her phone. Oh, okay. I was wondering, because Bailey allegedly was contacting but Matt, Matt had her phone. Vandecastiel said Bailey was at home. And it isn't clear if she knew what was going on or if she gave anyone permission to take her phone. She would be pissed that somebody took her phone and she didn't have it. 
So did Matt Queen do that often? Take her phone and pretend to be Bailey? That was Jane. Going off of what she said, the moms and I considered maybe something similar to this incident with Sam happened with Micah. And Bailey found out she was unknowingly used to lure her friend to his death. And that didn't sit well with her. But somewhat recently, I found out that prior to the charges being filed against Bailey, Cheryl and Lance had privately contemplated the possibility that Bailey could have played a more willing role in what happened to Micah than the rest of us had considered. Lance and I already had an inkling that she, if she wasn't involved, she probably lured him to where he was kidnapped from because it had happened before. Cheryl says those thoughts began after the moms came across a disturbing photo with a bizarre and twisted story that went along with it. A photograph had been sent to Micah and this other person indicating that Bailey had been hurt and it had been sent by Matt Queen and that he was implying, well, what are you going to do about it? Kind of a conversation. And Micah went The other person didn't, said he was frightened, he didn't go. And Micah went, and it turned out that she was fine. This had happened maybe in the previous year. And she was fine, and it was kind of a joke on Micah or or whatever. The photo sent to Micah and another guy showed Bailey slouched over a bathtub with what looked like a gunshot wound to her head. It's graphic and pretty unsettling. By his own account, Matthew Queen said it was a joke that he and Bailey played on Micah. Whatever the motive was, Cheryl says the takeaway is clear. Queen and Bailey knew that if Bailey seemed to be in some kind of distress, Micah would show up to try to help her. Kind of this big brother thing. I really do feel like it was that type of a relationship. I can't prove that, but everything kind of points to that, I think. The stage photo was just a piece in what we'd find to be a series of strange events involving the circle of friends, including Bailey, Micah, and Matthew Queen. And it would ultimately become part of Sergeant Garrett's investigation, leading him to consider the possibility that Bailey and Matthew Queen were in on the murder together. But the basis of the case was the story Matt Vandecastile told Sergeant Garrett and Lieutenant Bagby about a strange night when Queen and Bailey asked to use his garage. They were doing something out in the garage. I thought making guns until later on in the night. Bailey came in all shaken up, pale as, pale as fuck, went in, changed her clothes. They left. So the next day, Matt showed up, wanted me to go drive out somewhere with them to go fucking dump something. Go get rid of something. And I didn't go. He got all pissed off. Initially, Vanda Castile was adamant that on that night, Queen only asked him, can I use your garage? Never specifying what for. And that Vanda Castile himself came to the conclusion once he heard Micah was missing that they must have killed him that night. It was a story investigators weren't buying. That's not what you know. That's not all of what you know. That's for fucking sure. Right? I see nothing. Nothing at all. There's no body, there's nothing in there. No blood, no body, no evidence of a murder. Nothing. That's a lie. Be careful how much you choose to lie if you want the DA to come in here and believe that you are worth saving. 
I'm telling you the fucking there truth. Was a, there was a there's a a grease spot. So there's a grease spot. There was a there was a grease spot. It wasn't there the day before, and there shouldn't have been axle grease smeared all over where it was. Then Vanda Castile seemed to budge a little further and brought up an incident involving one of Queen's guns going missing, a gun that apparently had sentimental value. Vanda Castile said Queen suspected Micah stole it, so that was a possible motive, Vanda Castile said. But that was it. He said that was really all he knew. But as you've already figured out, Lieutenant Bagby wasn't going to just accept that that easily. So you can keep beating around these bushes all you want to. I've told you what the cat and mouse game will get you. What you're going to land in is a heap of shit. That's what you're going to land in. You can keep playing these games, trying to protect your people, trying to protect yourself, whatever the fuck you're trying to protect. Uh, He told me he was going to get Micah to admit to taking his gun. When? That night. I didn't think he was killing anyone. I mean, I didn't think it was going that far. So he took. I thought he was just gonna scare him and question him, right? Get him to admit it. And that was it. What investigators needed: witness testimony that, in fact, there was an alleged plan to get Micah to talk that night. But Vanda Castile never wavered in his claim that he never actually saw Micah at his house that night and didn't hear a sound coming from the garage. But he admitted he knew something was off based on Bailey's behavior. He said it started while him and Sarah were minding their own business, hanging out inside his house, and Bailey walked in from the garage and asked him for something. She came in once, asked for scissors, left, came back in, pale, flustered, shaken, and walked straight into the back with Sarah to change her clothes. It freaked her out. Whatever happened in the garage freaked her out. Vanda Castile said he knew better than to ask Queen many questions, but he said he couldn't help bringing up Bailey's demeanor. I just asked, I said, what's wrong with her? Oh, she's just shaking up. Shaking up over what? She didn't like what she seen. What did she say? Oh, don't worry, I mean, nothing, don't worry about it. I mean, it's better that you just don't know everything. Vanda Castile said he never flat out asked Queen what happened, but he said the writing was on the wall. What do you think happened? I think they tortured him and killed him. They tortured him with the intent to kill him, you think? Bailey had the intent of killing him? I can't say about that. After Micah was reported missing, Vanda Castile says Queen played it off like nothing ever happened. He never talked about that night. He would always talk about how he thinks that Micah split town with some chick. So you're telling us, just make sure I'm 100% that Bailey participated in torturing Michael Holsenby. Yes. Right? And what was her demeanor after all this? Was she still around? She didn't go I, missing until you were in jail? I didn't. She never came around that much afterwards. I would always show up by himself on a street bike. I mean, you just, but you didn't see her a lot? But you did see her. She still existed. Yes. We went antiquing. Antiquing. Who were antiquing? And Sarah, Matt, and Ben. You just like went driving around looking at antique stores? Yeah. Strange. You ever go antiquing? Antique stores got some crazy shit. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project. And every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister, Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions such as, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. It's quite the image, the two couples making an afternoon of antiquing after that strange night. As according to Van de Castile, Queen and Bailey seemingly shared a dark secret, while Van de Castile and Sarah shared dark suspicions. But aside from that outing, Van de Castile told investigators their foursome wasn't the same after Micah was reported missing. He says suddenly, Bailey seemed to never want to leave the house. But Queen, on the other hand, apparently still wanted to hang out with Van de Castile every day. After interviewing Van de Castile, Sergeant Garrett had forensics test that grease stain in the garage. Underneath, they found Micah's blood. Garrett also used Queen and Bailey's phone records to corroborate Van de Castile's story. The prosecution's theory laid out in charging documents is that at some point on March 22, 2018, Bailey and Queen kidnapped Micah. And as the night crept into the 23rd, they brought him to Van de Castile's garage, where they tortured him, killed him, and ultimately dismembered his body. Here's a bizarre detail Van de Castile told Sergeant Garrett. I know he bought a camera, and he took pictures of whatever the fuck they were doing. That's what I thought they were doing. I didn't think someone would take pictures of shit like that. What do you mean a camera? What kind of camera? A little Polaroid camera. Me and Sarah were playing with it in the house. Hearing that, I thought back to a recorded phone call between Vanda Castile and Sarah, back when they were still dating. Part of the call was played in the last episode. Sarah tells Vanda Castile... She had a dream about Bailey, who at this point had been missing for about a month. I was just really fucked up by that dream. It felt so real. It felt like she actually came back, and I haven't been able to, like... You know, I've always kind of... I ignored this whole situation for, like, since I've been getting sober and, like... You need to not be anywhere around it. Okay. Because I just talked to my... You don't want to fucking... You don't want to push, try, or put your nose in any of that. I know, I know, I know I need to keep my nose out of it. Uh, just, 
Maybe just stay out of it. Okay. I know. It's probably best. Because considering two people have gone missing over this, pu- this shit, you know? Yeah. Hey, you remember that night we were at the house and we're taking pictures with the Polaroid camera? Yeah. You still got those pictures? I have one of them. The one I wrote on? Or the one you wrote on? I wrote on all of them, but I only have the one of me flipping off the camera that oh, you really? took. Yeah, I can't find the other one. Uh, that was a weird night. It was a weird night. I love you. I love you too. Keep your nose out of everything. I will. It seems undeniable the weird night Vanda Castile's referring to is the night that Micah was killed. In the context of what Vanda Castile told Sergeant Garrett, it made sense why he abruptly asked Sarah if she remembered the night with the Polaroids in the middle of their conversation about Micah and Bailey disappearing. Maybe it was his way of reminding her why she really did need to stop poking around. And of course, I thought of the other time Polaroids were mentioned in the case in summer 2018. There was a Polaroid picture on my windshield of Bailey and Matt Queen, and it said, love you, mom. Jane couldn't prove it, but she had her strong suspicions about who put the Polaroid on her car that morning. Well, there's that Polaroid that Queen, allegedly, Queen put on Jane's windshield. Correct. Do you think it was taken that night? I mean, it'd be a fair assumption that it was taken in close proximity to that because they recently acquired that camera. If the Polaroid was taken that night and put on Jane's windshield by Matthew Queen, is there a deeper meaning to it? Was it Queen sending a message he thought he would only ever know the meaning of? I thought back to the strange message Queen had sent Jane on the afternoon of March 23rd, 2018, a date that now carried tremendous significance. Queen first texted Jane that day a long, nasty message about how she was too protective of Bailey and how dare she tell Bailey to murder their baby, and he demanded an apology. Jane responded, seemingly shocked and confused, saying she never told Bailey to get an abortion and that she had nothing to apologize for. Queen then replied, quote, "'Seems you've made your bed. You'll have to sleep in it now, Jane. I know you're in special ed, so I'll explain that.' See, it's a metaphor about life. The bed is yours. You have made a decision about how you want to live your life with or without me in it. And Bailey has made her decision also. Now we must accept the consequences that go with that decision. We must sleep in our beds. Goodbye, Jane. I always thought the wording was strange, given they were talking about Bailey having a baby, something Queen said he wanted. In the context, it seemed Queen was saying Bailey made her decision to keep the baby. So I never understood why he said we must accept the consequences that go with that decision. It had a negative connotation to it, which didn't seem to fit based on Queen saying they were excited about the pregnancy. I realize now Queen sent that text shortly after investigators believe Micah was murdered and around the time they believe his body was being disposed of. Was Queen dropping little breadcrumbs, tying Bailey to the crime, even then? Creating a trail he thought no one would ever be able to follow? 
Or is it all just a coincidence? You might remember I first started looking into the case about a month after Bailey disappeared, when I found a search warrant that described Queen dropping off her belongings on the front steps of a home where Bailey's friend lived. Bailey's friend's dad was startled to find her things that day. I see bags in my front door. And I, I looked down and there was a note. And it said, uh, tell Bailey that I love her, but I cannot be with her. And just something in between like that, like, like saying that he didn't want her back. Within Bailey's bag was one of her purses. Tied on the purse was a piece of orange and black rope. It didn't mean anything then, but seven months later, after the arm in the duffel bag in the river matched to Micah, it was decided Sergeant Garrett should be the lead investigator on each of the Bakersfield three cases. And so the sheriff's department sent over evidence they'd collected when they were assigned Bailey's case, including her belongings Queen dropped off at her friend's house. Upon opening up that bag, I immediately saw that rope. I said, I've seen that. I know where that came from. Sergeant Garrett saw the rope tied onto the bag that held Micah's arm was the same rope tied to Bailey's purse. Later on, investigators would also find that same rope tied to Queen's bedpost. I asked Sergeant Garrett what he makes of the rope being tied to Bailey's purse. I think it was just an accidental oversight that it was on the purse when it was dropped off. It seemed odd to me that any girl would put a piece of thick orange and black rope on their handbag. Certainly wasn't very stylish. I mean, you'd have to ask him why that's on there. Uh, I've tried multiple times and uh, couldn't really get that out of him because he didn't really want to talk to me over the years. I mean, there's obviously theories that you could propose yourself, you know. Maybe he intentionally put that on there to link her to things. I, I don't know. After the charges against Queen and Bailey were announced, I thought back to the posters that he had taped up over Bailey's missing flyers that Jane had hung up. They had a cryptic message about a villain pretending to be a victim. At the time, I thought he was referring to Jane. Now I wondered if it was actually about Bailey. And then there was a message that Queen put out that was blatant, spelling it out clearly. But at the time, no one really thought anything of it. Here's Di to explain. It was written on our Facebook page by Matt Queen. How would you feel if one of the other Bakersfield three... I don't remember the exact words, was involved in the other one's murder. It seems Queen actually wrote this comment twice. It started out with the question, what if one of the BK3 was responsible for the other BK3? One variation ended with asking, would you be mad? The second time he posted the question, he added, would the parents still be supportive to one another? When he wrote that, we talked about it, but we never dreamed that there was any truth to it. Looking back, one could say Queen had meticulously planted seeds of Bailey's guilt over the years. But if that had been his intention, Sergeant Garrett says it did nothing to minimize the evidence that linked him to Micah's murder. Overwhelming circumstantial evidence. Um, Then we had direct evidence that tied him to things. I mean, I had everything from uh, cell phone evidence to web searches to direct interviews with subjects, uh, co-defendants testifying. I mean, I even had ropes sent to the FBI lab uh, back east that linked things together. There's just a multitude of, of evidence that is just overwhelming. 
And then came one of the biggest pieces of evidence after a horrific discovery in August 2021. A little over a year after Queen and Bailey had been charged, a 10-year-old girl was playing at the Kern River with her family. She said she was under the water, skimming the riverbed floor looking for clams, when she felt something, a heavy bag. Curious, the girl picked it up and dragged it to shore. That day, all police would say was human remains were inside. Two weeks later, Cheryl got a call from the coroner's office. So I said, okay, you know, what's going on or whatever. And she said, well, I'm, you may have heard that human remains were found at, in the Kern River. And I said, yes, we knew that. And we'd been waiting patiently to hear if there was, you know, any further DNA testing that needed to happen. And, you know, we're certainly available for that. And I start going down my spiel and she saw, well, it's, we have determined that it's Micah. It's like, okay, okay, that's good. That's good. So we have more of him. Okay. So I was all, well, did you use our DNA swabs? And she said, no, we were able to use dental impressions because it was his skull. Micah's skull was found inside a bag meant to hold a motorcycle helmet. Queen was already charged with his murder, but the discovery led to even more evidence against him. Here's Sergeant Garrett. I found video of him of you know, opening up the uh, same helmet bag. Christmas of 2017, so three months before Micah was killed, which was a huge discovery. It made the case stronger, and it gave Cheryl what she thought she and her family wanted, more of Micah. But getting the news it was his skull took her to a dark place. In the mind's eye of a grieving parent, I learned at that moment that there is a very distinct difference between your child's arm and hand and their face. The first call she made that day was to Di. Di was already with Jane, and Jane and Di just so happened to be at the river at the exact spot where the child found the bag with Micah's skull. It felt meant to be, but it's not that surprising, as Jane had taken to going to any area where unidentified human remains were found just to scope it out see if she could find anything else in the event that the remains belonged to her daughter. And Di always went with her, making such a dreadful task perhaps feel a little less lonely. Immediately after getting the news, Cheryl met up with Jane and Di at the river. They embraced her and vowed to support her in what was just the latest chapter in her nightmare. Here we were standing out there, just walking along the banks and, and, and thinking about you know, that's where our son's face and head and hair were. It's really actually amazing that any of us are standing at this point because it's just, you know, you're just driving down the street one day and someone tells you your son's skull was found in the river nearby. Cheryl said after that, she realized the nightmare she was living might never end. After she described it to me, there was a long pause before she spontaneously said something about Bailey and Micah's case. The rest of our lives, we might get phone calls saying, this is Kern County Coroner. 
we think we might have part of Micah. Can you come give another set of DNA swaps, you know, or... Yeah. I mean, let's face it, his other arm and hand are out there somewhere. His legs are somewhere. I can't... I mean, I know that there are young women out there who have done heinous things, but I just don't see... I can't envision Bailey being a part of that. But maybe. I, I, You know, I, I don't have all the evidence because guess what? They don't tell the families anything. We only know what we know and what we've learned and what we've given them. So maybe more will be revealed. I don't know. But in the meantime, we have his, his head and one arm and one hand. That was a big question we all had. What was all the evidence that Bailey, along with Matthew Queen, killed Micah? How would the moms feel after seeing it and hearing it during a trial? Would it ultimately bring Cheryl any sense of peace, even in the slightest? This was a question I thought about a lot. I knew all Jane wanted was to find Bailey, even as she put it, if it was just a part of her. And all Di wanted was an arrest and charges filed in James's case. Cheryl now had both of those things, but did it really make anything any less painful? The next thing is a trial. And we've been told that that trial can take months. Do I want to sit there and, and, and sit through that for months? No. But will I do it? Yes. And then when, when that's over and, and assuming the best outcome from our perspective happens and uh, we don't have to deal with Matt Queen again in this lifetime, you know, will we feel better? No. Will we feel different? I hope so. Cheryl knew ultimately there'd be parts during the trial where her pain would be even deeper than it was before, where she'd have to sit through testimony and evidence about her child's horrific murder. But in time, Cheryl found a way to shift her outlook. In another life, Micah would have been an, an attorney. He was very much uh, enjoyed the law and politics and conversations about those things. And he would have been an attorney and no doubt a prosecutor. And going into the trial that's coming, I like to think of this as Micah's, this is Micah's day in court. This is Micah presenting every piece of evidence he could leave behind for us, including his own blood, records on his phone, whatever, whatever they've got. This was Micah giving us his best shot at catching the person who did this or people. And I want to be there for that. I want to be there for Micah getting to prosecute this case along with our DA. I just want to see him win. He was a good talker. <laughs> he could probably win. I want to sit there and I want to watch that. I want to watch him win. So hopefully that happens. Next time on the Bakersfield Three. Um, Queen, why are you testifying today? Well, I think it's about time the truth come out. What was it like to hear his testimony? Highly shocking. 
Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.